0: Welcome to The Deep Dive. I'm your host, Philip McKenzie. I'm an anthropologist strategist with a focus on culture and humanity centered design. I'm Brooklyn born and Brooklyn made. Every week, I will bring you guests from a wide variety of backgrounds who despite their different areas of expertise have one thing in common. They aim high, push boundaries and make things happen. Their experiences drive insights. Today's guest is Ferris Jakob, author, speaker, nomad, strategist, and co-leader, co-founder of Genius Steels. He's in New Zealand. I'm in New York. The power of technology is making this happen. Welcome to the Deep Dive, my friend.
1: Thank you very much for having me. What an amazing voice you have. That's uh, very baritone and resonant. It's lovely stuff. Thank you. It's all the microphone. I can't take any credit for it.
0: And my parents. my parents. <laughs>
1: The microphone is crucial, though. Getting that good mic, I mean, it's definitely... You take your natural gifts and you got to get the right equipment, don't you? You amplify them. Yes, exactly. Good point. That's a better joke.
0: (laughs) So, you know, you've had... You know, I've followed you on Twitter for a while. You clearly have a presence not only in social media, but in the industry. The industry being marketing, advertising, what I'll largely call creative. But I want to get into some basic background to sort of frame the way how you've come to where you are right now in your evolution as a creative. And so tell me a little bit about just your very basic background and this nomadic lifestyle that you're living, because I think that is part and parcel of informing your perspective.
1: I would agree with that. And I'll do the sort of super top line. I grew up in London, went to university, did the English literature, media theory like degree, I suppose. I never really had a clear vision for what I wanted to do for work. At the time, university was free in the UK. So you had a sort of, it was easier to reconcile a lack of vocational direction, I suppose, than it is now, maybe. I started out in management consulting because I didn't know what to do. Dot com explosion, 99, 2000, very exciting time. Learned some useful things about business strategy, some also useful things about how promises based on share valuations and market caps and stuff don't always materialize. Bumped out of that. Tried journalism for a while. Wrote for a magazine called Maxim as an you know, intern and then junior nobody assistant thing. Didn't love that. Tried record label for a bit. Didn't love that. Got into advertising. Thought I should build an actual career where I could go on a graduate scheme and learn some specific skills that I thought would be useful transferable. So I started out in media planning. Joined a company called Naked that was quite magical, which was attempting to sort of be strategic and creative at the same time and heal the rift between what was then sort of media agencies and creative agencies and advertising, the what as well as the where and the who and the when. During that period, I suppose, I fell in love with the... No, I said that's fair. I fell in love with the internet very early on. I got online in 1992 or three. So I was very internet. I was extremely online, like in 2000, let's say. And so mm-hmm. by the mid 90s started feeling frustrated and was blogging a lot and trying to work out why there was a lack of rigor intellectually in the advertising industry and what I could do about it. If nothing else, I could just say things and see what people thought. So those two strands happened. I got to go to Australia, and then I got to move to New York with my lovely employer. And then ultimately, I became the chief digital officer of McCann Erickson, a much, much larger entity, one of the world's biggest ad agencies in New York in its headquarters. And then I got to start a little agency under a holding company's auspices. And then three years after that, I could get out of it. So I sold my equity. So that's a preamble, right? My advertising career lasted probably 17 years in agencies, 16, 17 years in agencies. After five years in New York, which I loved, I found working there a bit brutal in the sense of the the weird sense of presentism that was very prevalent in agencies, especially I felt. Our board meetings were on Sundays at one agency I worked at every week, Sunday, because That was a good slot to use, apparently. (laughs) I'm, I'm genuinely, and I think that's just a repugnant way to run a business. I think it's genuinely unpleasant and extremely inconsiderate to people that want to have lives, families, children, hobbies, interests. All of which is to say, after five years, I thought I will make a change. I proposed to my wife and said, let's just travel. The Nomad thing wasn't like most of my career decisions planned in advance. Whilst we were traveling for six months, originally allocated We kept getting approaches to do bits of consulting or pitch help or various things from like agencies and former clients and friends and whatever. And after six months, we'd sort of broken even on that six months without really trying and sort of all the work just coming to us, which is really a gift. So my wife said, let's try and just do this and started it as a business. So we left New York in March of 2013. We've been nomadic for almost seven years. Our business was started six months later, so it's it's over six years old or will be six years old in December. And it still seems to be working, so I'm as surprised as anybody, frankly. But it definitely informs a lot of my both approach professionally and kind of my interest in a life well-lived, let's call it. yeah.
0: In that introduction, Mm -hmm. you actually sparked a couple of things that I really want to explore a little bit more as it pertains to advertising as an industry. One of them is this idea of being a generalist, which from my thinking, the industry has gone a long way toward asking people to be very specialized in particular spaces. And so I wonder in your 17 year career, Mm -hmm. your path to getting to where you are now could a comparable path happen in today's advertising? Of course, allowing for anything, it's possible, right? I'm not yeah. saying it can't happen, but I wonder if generalism or generalists are as welcome as in those days. I don't think they were welcome in those days. And
1: I think it's a really fair point. It's a real challenge the industry has created for itself. So, When I went to work at MDC Partners, this holding company that let me do certain things that at the time seemed very appealing, Alex Bogusky was still there. And Mm. I I was very keen to work with him because he at the time was the creative director that was changing culture in a really visible way, both inside the industry and externally. I would say he had made advertising kind of glamorous again for a moment that it hadn't been for a while and hasn't been since, I feel. Mm Mm-hmm. And he said something to me when we were, he said, we were interviewing each other. He was interviewing me on his podcast E video show out of the Crispin offices in Boulder. And he said, you've been very lucky to have a very non-traditional career path to like extreme seniority. Like I, I couldn't have got more senior at that point. There was nowhere else to go apart from CEO. And I'd never had the same job more than once. And it was extremely unusual. It was very, even then, worth pointing out, I suppose because I started out as a management consultant, they're inherently generalists, right? And uh, advising on business strategy is generalist because from my point of view, a business strategy has to understand how a company makes money and what its objectives are, and then help guide the allocation of resources, both business, behavior, brand, including things like media and money and employment, everything really, and identify the right place to allocate that intention, that effort to solve the immediate need or objective, right? So generalism seems baked into what I think strategy is, was. The industry began to fragment because the fragmentation of media begat the fragmentation of agencies in the early 90s in the UK. And then later in America, media agencies broke off from creative agencies, the sort of idea of a full-service agency partner was bifurcated into two very different kinds of companies. And I started out as a media planner, but I was an account planner and then later a creative director. And the culture of media agencies, and creative agencies is so vastly different, right? So for the first time in the 90s, you had a situation where strategy, as the advertising industry thinks about it, was torn apart into two separate things that was owned by two separate companies that had different kinds of ways of measuring, different kinds of ways of thinking, and different business models that charged differently about how they allocated spend. That continued until about late 90s when digital Whatever happened, the internet happened. The fragmentation of digital channels is near infinite because it's not a channel. The internet isn't like a channel like other media has been. It's an infinite suite of platforms, channels, and tactics that has realistically an infinite bandwidth. So what happened was every new thing created a new set of agencies that could operate or create in that thing digital being the first thing, and then obviously social coming after digital being a whole separate thing, and then you know to the point where there's an agency in New York that just does creative work for Instagram stories. Not Instagram, that's too broad a church for their particular creative output, only Instagram stories. And at that level of specialism, you're a production company, not an agency, essentially, from my point of view. So what happened then, right, is around the same time as this was happening, all these... I was working at Naked, and one of our jobs at one point was to manage the 40 or so roster agencies that Sony was working with around Europe. Mm -hmm. And when you have 40 or so agencies, this thing began to happen in the mid-2000s where agencies began to create strategists. And the strategy role basically was to swim upstream, like sort of salmon, to help spawn budgets to their discipline. So all these different strategists in different disciplines, their function inherently is to help that agency get more money, and therefore they are sort of inherently biased cognitively and commercially towards the discipline that they represent, right? Yeah. So those specialisms, then you get people coming up through the industry that have never worked in different kinds of agency, right? So people at media have always been media, people in creative have always been creative, or digital, or brand, or PR, <laughs> or whatever. And we've done between my wife and I I've done most of those different agency. So we have a sort of degree of empathy for that relationship because having been on both sides of a relationship, it's easier to empathize than just to blame or to be fractious. So long winded, but I am quite long winded. We created loads and loads of specialisms. We fractally broke down strategy into micro versions of itself. And then yes, someone at some point in the process does something which we tend to call integration, which is put things back together I would argue that integration is a symptom of the problem, not a solution to the problem, because I think someone has to decide at the the beginning, which is be more integrative, right? So anyway, I'm very interested in generalists versus specialists. The more competition Mm. in a market, specialism is bred, but generalists are required to understand enough of each specialism to put it back together. And I just picked this book up, right? Okay. And I haven't read it yet, but it says, it's called Range, by David Epstein. It's an unfortunate surname right now, but never mind. How generalists triumph in a specialized world. And just on, an, on it, that title alone, it very much appealed to me as I sort of tend to veer towards generalists' generalism in my own stuff.
0: It's funny that you bring this book up mm-hmm. because in an interview that I my first interview that I did this morning, that book also came up. Mm. And the person you were say it was
1: good because I haven't started it yet.
0: Yes. yes. Good,
1: yes. right. I, I will read it there.
0: And listeners, I never know in sequence when these are going to drop. <laughs> sure. So I might be in the future or in the past as to this reference, <laughs> but this is clearly in the zeitgeist, right? And one of the things that I use in my practice is I try to pull things from seemingly disconnected worlds. So someone mentioning that book range in one context and then you mentioning now in another is just a reinforcement that there's not, of course, I'm not editorializing on how good the book is, but I'm just saying that there's something going on where we're having this conversation in the universe around specialty versus generalism. And when you mentioned this putting together and breaking apart, part of my background is in finance. I was a trader for many years. And what you describe in advertising and creative sounds very much like a standard operating practice in m a in most large investment banks, right? We put things together in big mega deals, collect fees, and mm-hmm. then five to 10 years later, when it all turns out to be bullshit, we break them up again, right? And yeah. start the process all over again.
1: <laughs> so I do feel like that's what happens. That there's a pendulum swing, right? Like, everybody would love to be a polymath and be good at everything, but it becomes impractical the more deep knowledge becomes in each discipline or domain. And so it swings between, like, I need experts, best of breed, a center of excellence, or I need, like, one throat to choke, and it swings backwards and forwards. And, you know, consolidation is usually a bad thing for the economy and consumers, but could be seen to be a good thing for companies, maybe, and, like, at different points in their to your point, the pendulum thing, right? So yeah. in India in India, and, and other parts of Asia, most companies are highly consolidated. You know, Tata famously makes tea, trucks, telecoms, satellite television, coffee. They're consulting. Yeah, the consultancy. <laughs> yeah they, they do everything. And they do it pretty well from what I understand. I mean, yeah. I don't know, but their reputation is very strong in India. Because mm-hmm. my point my anti-corporate sort of monopoly kind of thing, which is like too much power in one set of hands is inherently not good for markets and for, Liberty. In India, they're not at that stage. They're not at that point of the pendulum. They're like, no, nah, it's great. We're very proud of Tata. They're a great company. So it, it does tend to move backwards and forwards. And I think it's because it's an unsolvable problem. It's more of a paradox to be managed than a problem that can be solved.
0: Yeah. And the piece I wanted to jump on before I lose it, yep. even though I think like we're going to come back to this, is when you talked about This desire to blog and communicate and share Mm -hmm. ideas because of what you saw as a lack of rigor within advertising that instantly triggered in my mind that our desire for measurement, our desire to quantify within Mm -hmm. the creative process has taken the place of what I'm assuming you're thinking about as rigor. Like rigor to me is an intellectual exercise.: Yeah. as compared to what I find when I'm in conversations is people relying on flimsy, quantitative and data-driven measures. Yeah, that's masquerading as rigor. And maybe I'm giving more of my point of view, but I'm curious as to when you highlight no. rigor, what you mean by that term.
1: Yeah, okay. So I agree with what you said. I think the ability to create metrics isn't the same thing as being rigorous. It just looks like it if you don't know how digital stuff works, I think. So let's start at the beginning and then get to that, I think. To me, rigor is having a semi cogent model for how what we do works. Like, unless you have some kind of cognitive, sociocultural model for making better advertising, then you never get to improve your advertising except on gut instinct. And hoping for the best. It seems fundamentally unstrategic to me to make multi-billion dollar decisions on intuition of people that like making 30 second pieces of film or otherwise, right? It doesn't matter. That's not robust business recommendations. At the same time, the tyranny of metrics or, or kind of management by metrics is equally facile because you can't replace intuition and like critical thinking and human judgment by sets of metrics that can always be gamed. right? Any kind of metric-based management protocol is inherently subject to Goodhart's law, which says that when a measure becomes a target, it ceases to be a good measure, because all the incentives in that system get messed up. Equally, a lot of the metrics that we see are later, let's say, uh, proven to be not true. right? There's a lot of opacity, especially in a digital marketing ecosystem. And Facebook has consistently overstated its metrics to advertisers Mm -hmm. to the point where it was fined $50 million a few months ago, which is no money at all for Facebook, but a lot of money for an advertiser. So like, if you're managing by metrics, you've got to be really super confident in the metrics. And if you're just taking Facebooks at face value, that can't be the case, which means giving them more money is not a good idea, but it seems to keep happening. right? So it feels like there's a couple of problems. One, which is that there needs to be an intellectual rigor to having a thing which can get better over time. And I think you need to be able to measure some things, but you can't just abnegate responsibility for decision-making to a spreadsheet because then you don't need to exist either as a job.
0: That conflict or that conflict isn't the right word because I don't think they're actually fighting with one another, but we can lean into that because I don't have a better word right now. I often am challenged by that. So I'll use myself as a personal example as someone who Mm -hmm. came up in engineering, worked in finance, very yep. comfortable with numbers at a, I would say a decently high rate or level. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And when I would talk to people about their numbers, it would just reinforce to me how little they actually knew,
1: mm-hmm. which yeah.
0: made me just assume that, you know, this is all bullshit, right? Like you're just saying things, you don't really understand like statistics mm-hmm. and regression, and but it just sounds good enough, And so it leans me toward the serendipity part of this, right? Which is some of this can't be measured, right? Like Mm -hmm. how we feel about something. We can give assertions and lean toward things, but when you're in love, you're in love, right? Like who can tell you (laughs) otherwise? (laughs) Yeah, and it's inherently a subjective phenomena.
1: So what you described as being in love, it's impossible for me to know if it means the same thing to me or not. And that's why we have literature because and everything else that's art, because we're trying to express something which is inherently unexpressible. It requires a translation from mm-hmm. experience, like the qualia of experience, to media or writing or whatever, right? So yes, I think that if you've been in a financial background, I think I have a friend who works in the city or works in banks and now it's slightly different, but he told me this story about how the high-frequency trading people had to mm-hmm. sort of, shuffle, they sort of slightly shuffled out of advertising a little. I mean, of finance, the flash boys thing. People changed the parameters, and the, it still, I'm sure, it happens. But and he said he saw some of the guys he knew from the high-frequency trading days a bit later, and he asked them what they were doing, and they said so they moved into advertising because no one there understood anything about business, money, or numbers. <laughs> And uh, I thought that was very entertaining. I think, however, that was a while ago. I think particularly media agencies, which are the, let's say, the more numerate side of the left brain, right brain sprit in advertising, creative and, and media, which is whatever. The more numerate side has become much more sophisticated over time. They've had no choice. And they're sort of competing with consultancies and trading platforms that require some of the elements of that. And, and it's sort of just, it's a combination of technical and numerate literacy. But yes, I think that's, challenges in both bits right the numbers can be robust but how did you get the numbers and that's a technical problem a lot of the time
0: and that's the interesting analogy to talk about like that kind of high frequency trading because I I was Mm. a trader and I agree with your friend's assertion that from business school on it was sort of like oh the marketing kids they're easy marks because (laughs) they don't really get the numbers (laughs) but I will say this that people like that shifting into advertising to me is exactly the challenge, right? In yeah. that they're taking the same gamification of numbers and insights and now plugging them into a different space. So I, I always use this story of I watched Enron when I was trading, go from a yeah. hundred to zero and mm-hmm. we recommended it all the way down that road. So yeah, numbers are kind of, I don't know, these people are supposed to be the experts in it and they they don't really care, right? You know, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that stock
1: picking individually is very rarely going to outperform the market. Hence, index linked funds with low-cost bases tend to be a better investment decision for most people. I think we're back to the same question, which is people want to binarize things. They want to think in binaries, particularly in this. the Western tradition of thought comes out of Greece and, and Hellenic systems of logic and so forth. And so we veer strongly towards categorization that is discrete, which means we veer towards binaries, things either are or aren't, and they can't be both, right? So, you know, the madmen error begat the math men error. Both expressions are irritating, and yes. both of them are not sufficient, right? We talk about this a lot. These, these are naive binaries that we create for ourselves because one bit of the industry wants to sell one thing and one wants to sell the other. I'll give you an example. All these naive binaries, as soon as you smell a naive binary, it's this or that. Nothing in the world works like that. Nothing at all exists in the world that is binary with the exception of binary. Nothing (laughs) else is like that. Everything (laughs) else is spectrum, continuum, Mm -hmm. gray, confusing, complexity, right? So as soon as you get established with like... So the canonical one in advertising that I think covers this is like the art versus science debate. Mm -hmm. I feel like science is inherently about measurement, right? Science is empiricism. You have a hypothesis, you try something, you see if it aligns with the hypothesis. If it doesn't, you have a new hypothesis, right? That requires you measuring something. Otherwise, you're not really doing science, right? Now, this idea is not new. This comes from 1923. Claude Hopkins wrote a book called Scientific Advertising, which pronounces in its very first paragraph that the problem of advertising has been solved. It has been rendered unto a science, And he goes on for the rest of the book to talk in very vague anecdotal terms about things that don't seem like science at all. But (sighs) the bit of science he's talking about essentially is optimizing response rates on coupons in newspapers by Mm -hmm. changing the copy and doing multivariate A-B testing across different executions. Fine. That's fine. But what he says is, it's a science. And there's a reason he does this, right? Because he was not a scientist. He was a copywriter. And he was trying to sell his agency and his belief system to clients and the world. And what does science give you? What's the one thing that science gives you that art can't? It's prediction. The whole point of science is that I can make robust predictions about the future. And so everyone was like, yes, now I can predict. If I spend X, I will get Y in advertising, direct coupon print media. So then in the 60s, another guy turned up and he went, this is all nonsense, this is rubbish. And he said, I warn you, and the, and the language is important because this guy was also a copywriter. He said, <laughs> I warn you, I warn you not to be fooled into thinking that advertising is a science. It is inherently persuasion, and persuasion is an art. Now, this was Burnback, right? This was Bill Burnback before he left Gray to start a DDB. His memo to Gray in 1957 or around then said some of these things. And he said, look, we must prove to the world that good art and good writing and good taste can be good selling. Because he was a copywriter and he was trying to sell his agency and his ideas. And he wanted the creative to be the final decision maker in any advertising decision. Yeah. Right? Famously, that thing with Hertz, his contract with Hertz, the client was like, we will never know as much about car rentals as you you will never know as much about advertising as us. And ultimately, the creative director becomes the subjective decision-making kind of figure thing. That's equally biased and equally flawed, right? You can't just say, oh, it'll work. Well, that's not reliable. I can't make multi-billion dollar decisions on someone's intuition. That's a terrible way to run a business. So the binary is naive. You need both, and you need more than both. They are both necessary, but not sufficient. There's
0: other pieces that have to come into that equation and this we diverge a little bit from the nomadic piece but i want to come back to that only because i want to talk about this idea of curiosity and this idea of balance because i think that is maybe part of what's needed to push back against this capacity for binary right the more curious you are perhaps you're willing to entertain possibilities that others might not. So tell me a little bit about you know your respective journey along that path of yeah, curiosity.
1: So we've always been very keen to travel. That was clearly a big part of our life and how we spent our time even in New York we were traveling quite a lot. It occurs to me that habituation is humanity's greatest strength and its most obvious kind of attack weak point if you like. Zero day exploit or something. So your brain is really good at patterns. If patterns repeat often enough, it just chooses to ignore them and gets you to work without you knowing how you got the train or the bus or whatever. Mm -hmm. You don't remember driving often because your brain isn't really paying attention. So habituation is basically you saving energy, which is fine, but it means your brain turns itself off for vast swathes of your day. And if you work in an office, you can have that experience of, you know, think back to a year, five or six years ago when you worked in an office, the same office for the whole year and try and have a distinct memory from that year from working it's really hard to do because every day it's self-similar you're in the same place you go to the same place you're in the same meeting with the same people and the same clients and your brain just goes got it I know what's happening don't worry about it right so novelty is very good for waking you up from that problem finding novel stimuli novel contexts novel clients to work on novel countries forces you to stop relying on autopilot and think again and see again and you know find those things. At a certain point, too much novelty makes your brain very tired. And so a bit of habituation goes a long way. Again, it's not binary, hopefully not anyway. So we have found it very valuable in terms of just creatively and just you know cognitively refreshing our minds. It also means you, we're constantly seeing stuff, right? I'm constantly seeing ads in other countries and thinking about how they work, thinking about how other how brands that appear in one market, analogs of those brands will appear in other markets pretty soon afterwards. When the same commercial evolutionary niche seems to exist, somebody will fill it, you know. And, you know, the cognitive load part comes with costs. Managing our life is a hugely complex endeavor. But I feel like it gives us a kind of breadth that is very hard to replicate.
0: When I was checking out your newsletter, in anticipation of this conversation, but also just generally, because I, I try to read a ton, is an anecdote around yoga and mm-hmm. being open to teachers. And I think in that particular moment, there was a, a choice of not even, I guess, a unit uni way of looking at things like it's kind of my way as the teacher rather than being open to other paths. So I'm, I'm curious... How does one stay open Mm. to that sort of experience, particularly when you're in a space, whether it's yoga or advertising, where people are looking for methodology, right? They are looking to customize a, a way of doing things.
1: So, okay. In that instance, the person was teaching a specific flow, Ashtanga, which is basically vinyasa, but the more hardcore version of it. And the same set of poses can be taught in a million different ways. And so people like to say things like there's no process for creativity. I'm like, well, that's not true. It clearly is because at a certain point, someone has to ask you to do something. And at a certain point you have to have done something. So that's a process. (laughs) And usually what you'll do is if you're trying to have an idea is look for inspiration, so that's a process. And it's a process which suggests strongly you have an inkling of how creativity works which is it? one cannot invent without inventory. Like your brain doesn't generate stuff out of nothing. That would be a nonsense statement that makes no sense. Mm-hmm. It's like saying, oh God, it's unbelievably self-aggrandizing garbage. And, and it, like, I created something from nothing. No, what an absurd thing to say. Of course you didn't. You are the sum total of all your experiences and all the media and content and ideas you have consumed. And in between the intersections of some of those things, new-ish ideas, or at least new to you, Will manifest when several different ideas trigger themselves in your brain at the same time. All right. So there's always a process and a methodology. Now, when you get to these highly trademarked, multi stage processes, right, you probably have got to a place where you're trying to convince someone too much. You're trying to pretend you're a consultancy. And if you're a consultancy, the first thing you learn is you take a service and you productize it. Mm-hmm. Or we take a product and you serviceize it, right? So you you have to make it look like you're doing a number of very complex things to charge a lot of money for them. And so again, in between the two points is totally like, it's always a process. There's, there's always a process. There's always a model. You can't think without models. Like That wouldn't make any sense either. You're thinking in words. That's a model. Your language system is a specific model. Your context, it, all these things are models, right? So however, If you abstract any set of processes to a certain point, like a strategy process from an agency or a consultancy, they're all basically the same, Mm -hmm. which is there is a thing. The thing is probably a problem. That problem is really usually I want to grow or make more money as a business. Those are the kinds of problems we tend to get tasked with in advertising, consulting, law, every other professional service. That's the kind of problem we mean, which is an opportunity, a desire, a future state, which is different to the current state, and they want some way of getting to that future state, be it with an ad or an app or uh, infrastructure or IT, web, right? That's the beginning of it. Then a useful, a robust strategic process, at least, will do something like digest all the relevant information as fast as you possibly can. Ideally, all the stuff has been written elsewhere, all the reports, all the pre-existing work, other solutions that have been tried and failed or had success and why. And then, to your point about earlier, you'll then look much further afield. Because if all you do is that, you get locked into a sort of narrower and narrower box. And then what we would do is look for patterns elsewhere, right? Which is to find interesting solutions to a problem about this, look at something that's not like that and see how they could be coming together more, right? Where's mm-hmm. the, the fit? The most famous examples are you know, probably not true, but taking something from one domain and putting it somewhere else makes it creative almost immediately, which is like yeah. you know the guy who invented Velcro had those burrs on his pants and thought, well, I'll make Velcro, <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> which is, it's the same thing, right? It's, it's a hook and a base kind of arrangement of, of these yeah. things and you know, I can do it. So it's not that methodologies are bad. I think, again, creativity, people are, everyone is creative. Some people are better at doing it naturally than others. And often they won't be aware of how their brain is doing it, but then you're not really aware of how your brain is doing anything. So that shouldn't be a barrier to understanding that it's doing something and not you just
0: magically had an idea. (laughs) And you mentioned this within that frame of that particular question, this idea of something being familiar, right? Mm -hmm. And so you're not just generating something out of nothing because our brains need to have, or the way in which we process needs to anchor at some point of familiarity, but, yes. but yet one needs to go in a different direction, right? So maybe yeah. hip hop has roots in spoken word and jazz and, and different things of improvisation, mm-hmm. but yet mm-hmm. comes along at a particular cultural time and yeah. takes a seeming leap forward, right? Did Grandmaster Flash and African Bombada, did they know all of this 30, 40 years prior? I don't know. I can't speak to that, but how do we account for, or it sounds like those sorts of yeah, examples okay, yeah. Yeah. give us these leaps forward, right? Where they link, but they go
1: Yeah. So in another there's direction. There's a couple of ways of thinking about this. One, which is, it's called Maya, most advanced yet acceptable. It's a design thing that I forget who wrote it. But the idea is that if you make something really, really new, people have no way of understanding it. No frame of reference. It scares people or even they just don't get it because it doesn't make any sense, right? But if you get do something a bit new with enough familiarity that you sort of understand what they're doing, but it pulls it in another direction, that's where the sweet spot tends to be for creativity, right? Um, the same is true. like a, a dash mm-hmm. of the familiar makes the strange palatable, but without the strange, it's boring. So with hip-hop, and I think this is an interesting point. I mean so we often look backwards and judge the significance of someone's creation based on its later success. But to your point, hip-hop appeared at a moment that hip-hop is beyond a musical form, if I understand it, it's a cultural form. It's all kinds of different things interming- intermingled around the 80s in Brooklyn yeah. and technology that allowed you to do certain things and parties that were a certain kind of context and a desire to take a break and play it longer so you could break dance and all that kind of thing, right? With media ideas or like any kind of yeah, I would, I would argue that music is a media thing and that different genres of music are like typologies of music. They are formats. Rock was a format that, you know, came from a place. It involves some of the constituent elements of other things. And then it, at a the moment, amplification allowed you to distort or push machines beyond what they were supposed to do and create a new kind of thing. When typologies form, or genres in music terms, sometimes they become so defined that then people can then go and make more of that thing. Right. Like in dance music, when I was growing up, there mm-hmm. were sub genres that were so niche. People would try a thing. Like I believe speed garage existed as a, uh, a musical genre in, in, you know, maybe 1997. And I think it referred to like three songs, maybe two songs. And it was like, it's not working. It's fine. Listen to me. Answer, yes. you know? And it, you know, maybe it was a, <laughs> missing link between UK Garage and American Garage that led to dubstep and trap. Maybe it was, I don't know. But if it's only when the form, the genre, like it's a sonnet or it's a, a thriller movie or it's the novel or it's hip hop, it's only when that, that form becomes solid that we can see the sort of progression, right? The rest of the time, it's experimentation. It's just, I tried this, yeah. I smashed it in with this, didn't really work, great, well, yeah, good luck to you.
0: Yeah, it, it's I, I feel that way about you know free jazz. <laughs> like it had the the rules of jazz were dismissed, and now you just have my friends will hate me for this <laughs> that are musicians. Like you know they're jazz musicians, so they have tried to sell me on this idea that no, there's yeah. value there, and I'm like, dude, I just can't. Like it just sounds like a lot of noise because yeah. the having no rules, it's not,
1: and, and it's, not a, good, it's not a good, it's not
0: a good creative
1: brief. <laughs> Like as Ogilvy apparently once said, give me the freedom to type brief, right? If you can do anything, your brain is like, well, what am I supposed to do? But if you're doing jazz, it's variations on very tight forms or blues or rock music or hip hop. You know what it should sound like or drum and bass, and you can make variations in that form which are interesting. But Unless you know the form, it all sounds the same to you anyway, right? You need constraints. Without constraints, you don't really have like a poem is only a poem like you know before free verse because it rhymed in some fashion. And so making things rhyme yeah. was the creative job and then when you find things that rhyme your brain is like forced to think differently about what you might say something happens which can be really beautiful yeah. and amazing you know. So you you need
0: those those rules you know. Some of the constraints that I think we're dealing with now are I'll say environmental to the business culture and maybe they permeated into the larger culture as a whole which is this idea of short-term being more paramount Mm -hmm. than the long-term, right? So we're in this world where we're kind of quarter by quarter thinking, and that impacts so, so much of the work. And I'm curious if you see in your, now that you're, Mm. you're traveling, you've been traveling for a long time, you're getting a chance to understand, are these, intrinsic stories of a Western way of thinking are they in other parts of the world are they doing things differently like what's the through line through this kind of short-term way in which we're conducting business and how it's really impacting advertising
1: yeah it's a huge problem right it's a huge challenge let's say ultimately advertising is a very very small industry a very very small industry that sits inside or as an agent of Much all the other industries that are much bigger Mm -hmm. than us, right? Advertising is about one and a half percent of GDP. It's never gone up or down. It's basically a flat industry; doesn't grow. But like the size of massive banks or software companies or any other client you might have are so much bigger. And ultimately, everything—it's not just short-termism. In that sense, the commercial—it's creeping financialization where financiers and bankers took over the logistics and management operations of the entire economy and all of the companies. So instead of your company being run by the shoe designer or the engineer that built the thing, eventually it'll get run by a finance person, and you'll be taken off, which is what always happens, right? Because at a certain point, the market takes control over its assets, and and that whole system is broken for lots of reasons. I think it's sort of very normal in the sense that, we do a lot of mental accounting, which discounts the future really heavily because we don't, we're not not good at... Whether or not the marshmallow test is real, it's been... Dis- I don't know. The marshmallow test is that thing yeah. where one marshmallow now or two marshmallows in the future. Maybe it isn't true. Maybe a lot of psychology experiments, it turns out, aren't true, but whatever. The whole... One of the challenges of being a person is that I want stuff now, but I also want to be fitter in the future. And to do that, I have to do things I don't want to do now, right? That, that's... <laughs> Managing long, medium, and short-term as a person is a complex thing, and we have massive obesity in America and England and other places that have processed fast foods, and that's the problem of, you know, that's just short-term versus long-term made evident, right? Like a long time ago, there were operating systems that allowed us to think on longer time scales, and I don't think they were good operating systems necessarily, but they were very effective operating systems. I mean, essentially religion. Religion's a really good operating system for getting people to do things outside of their own lifetime. Mm-hmm. Because if you believe that you've got to pray forever, if you're a Catholic or a Mormon or whatever, if you believe that, you'll build, you'll start cathedrals like in medieval Europe that only your grandchildren or your great-grandchildren will see to completion. He's not doing it for immediate personal gain. You're doing it for the greater glory of an abstract thing you're never going to actually see in real life, Right. That was a good way of getting people to think long-term. And then we don't have that system as evident in some parts of the world now. And th- that system also, because of things like rapture thinking and end of days thinking in any millennial kind of way of thinking about religion, it's the opposite of that. Some religions have become trying to increase short-termism to the point of end times so the rapture can happen, which is, it's never a good long-term, like, it's never good to think that if you're thinking about solving complex long-term problems. If you think it's okay, well, this is the end. The, yeah, the end of the world is coming pretty soon. It doesn't really inspire one to do hard mm. things that are required to change. In other parts of the world, yes, they tend to have, I guess, more traditional cultures where you tend to, let's say in India and Asia and even Italy, live with your family for a lot longer yeah. or live in large family groups. So you're more kind of connected to, at least generationally to tradition and to that thing. But the accounting is happening everywhere, right? So we were just in Delhi. Delhi had, uh, there was a couple of conditions that happened and it had over a hundred times the uh, recommended amount of air pollution in the air, over a hundred times. It was, they had to close the schools for a mm-hmm. week. You couldn't drive on every other day. You can only drive on odd days or even days, depending on your license plate. They had to stop industry all around Delhi for a while. The manufacturing shut down. They stopped the burning of the bush that was happening in the neighboring states because people are going to die, right? And so that's, again, it's very much like short-term, long-term thinking. I need to make stuff and money now because I'm trying to raise a country out of poverty. Makes sense. In the medium term, it's going to cause a lot of pollution. In the long term, we're going to have to fix the problems we're creating in this part of our evolution, the same way that England had to by banning smog in the 50s and America had to by moving things to China. So it's an inherent human issue, right? And it's always going to be a problem like managing
0: short and long-term. And that narrative that, is there a way to replace a, you know, whether it's a a religious narrative that maybe Mm -hmm. contributed to the building of of monuments. And I mean, we see that with the pyramids. We've seen this with any number of of large, you know, human-centric construction projects, Mm -hmm. right? But now we're facing new, new challenges. And what I see is mm-hmm. ego looking for solutions that are out of now our bound experience. Meaning this planet's done. So let's just go to Mars, right? Or something something like yeah. that. Yeah. I mean,
1: there's almost nothing there's almost nothing more repellent than than that to me. The idea that as a billionaire you think I'm in a, well, this is pretty much broken. How do I get to New Zealand where I currently am? It's very nice. How do I buy a passport to New Zealand like certain Silicon Valley investors have done? Or how do I get to Mars because we've broken this planet? That to me is just the most repellent response to a situation of complexity because it's a problem that all the problems we face are beyond single mind problems. We operate in a world of extreme complexity that's ever increasing because more components are beginning to interact, right? That's what globalization really is more pieces interact over massive distances more frequently, which creates more novelty, which is good for creativity, but potentially very hard to make it predictive. And so like, yeah, I think there are mechanisms, right? So I think infrastructure is important and nobody wants to make it. There's a reason we have taxes. It's because nobody wants to build roads that they live on and no one wants to make the lights work on the streets they live on. And nobody wants to have the fire engine privately paid for, unlike apparently it is being in California <laughs> now. And they only protect places that they're in. Yeah. They this is apparently a thing. If it's a private fire brigade in California where they only will protect places that are insured by that people. And I'm like, that's just a garbage way to run a world, right? So taxes are a, are a mechanism for doing this, right? Redistributing to the longer term. However, when governments get caught up in the same cycles and financialization as businesses, we have a challenge. So the New Deal famously was a massive infrastructure project that was designed to make America fit for purpose and rebuild spirit after a big collapse in confidence of the what was then a financialization problem, right? So I think governments are the mechanism. Unfortunately, they seem to have mostly decided that free-ish market economics is a better way to solve problems which it doesn't seem to be.
0: Yeah, and that's a story, right? Like I think, and, and that's what I, I really, when I think about the world that we have in terms of branding and economics, I agree that, yes, if you think about advertising, that the world is smaller than competing industries, but at the same time, yeah, that interconnectedness of telling stories, reinforcing values, pulling out cultural norms, yeah. and then disseminating them is, is very much a part of the brand work that all of us have been a part of, right? <laughs>
1: 100%, 100%. I mean, it's not like there's any kind of moral high ground I'm trying to oh, explain yeah, yeah. here. It, it's, I think advertising is the lubricant of capitalism, right? That's a nice way of putting it, in my <laughs> opinion. I would prefer not to think we create emotional illnesses in order to predate on them to sell makeup. Because, you know, in India, it's lightning yeah. cream, and in America, it's tanning cream. They're both basically telling you whatever you are is not enough. Anyway, I'd rather not think that way personally. It doesn't make me feel good about myself. So I think it's more of a lubricant of a system. I think, however, one of the challenges is it's a sleight of hand to say it made money, therefore it's good. But that sleight of hand happens all the time in business. You'll see it. Like, is this good design? Well, did the product, was it successful products? And did I get loads of money in my IPO or from investors? Yes. Therefore it's a good product. Therefore the design was good. That little sleight of hand is very sneaky and simple. So. The way I've been thinking about this recently is something like late stage hyper neoliberal capitalism has an embedded McNamara fallacy in it, right? The McNamara fallacy is basically, you know, it's a metrics problem. So you try and measure the things that matter, but some things can't be measured. And then the way your brain will work is it'll begin to ignore the things it can't measure because it doesn't really suit your spreadsheet or your model. And then the latter stage of the fallacy is you will begin to think the things you can't measure don't exist and that will have no impact right and so in capitalism the way it's currently sort of operating in some markets i would say is that because money is the only quotient of value that counts it's inherently ignoring anything that doesn't either create money or allocate it or something yeah and so
0: it's another measurement it, tool
1: yeah exactly so yeah. for example it also institutionalizes all kinds of power systems, not to get all Foucault on you, but you know, like historically speaking, like social labor, parenting, uh, looking after elderly relatives, teaching, being a doctor in most countries, a lot of these things didn't have a number value assigned to them. And so they were rendered not work in the system we created, right? And then, you know, now we have this thing, they call it emotional labor to try and remind people that it's still work, just not work you necessarily get paid directly for. And that's maybe
0: a problem in how we measure things writ large. Even how we allocate costs is another thing that came up earlier in another conversation that our measurement of cost, the way in which we define how we're using our resources, is part of Mm. the overall conversation of how all of this works. It makes decisions based on a story that we've already told ourselves, right? A
1: hundred percent, right? So, you know, you can trace back the modern way of Neoliberal economics to sort of Milton Friedman at the Chicago School in the early 70s. He wrote a very famous thing, which is kind of, you know, the only social responsibility of a company is to produce profits.
0: The shareholder, um, shareholder trap.
1: Yeah. <laughs> it's a shareholder trap. And there's a lot of reasons why, both in law and in common sense, is not a smart idea. But the article is very smart the way he constructs his argument. He's not a stupid person, obviously. But That way of thinking, it's confusing in lots of ways, right? And even Friedman appreciated what are called negative externalities and said that that's the loophole by which you solve and regulate the inherently selfish behaviors of corporate entities, right? Because a commercial entity exists to make money, that makes it selfish. The way you manage that is through regulating and pricing in negative externalities. Otherwise, what happens is you get private profits and social costs. And we seem to have a place where we get a lot of private profits and a lot of social costs.
0: That's a good way to get a $1.7 billion severance from from a company swiftly heading towards zero. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, I'm fascinated with this whole
1: story. I mean, like, he clearly was, you know, a cult leading charlatan of the highest order. But the system that exists that enabled and allowed that is the yeah. problem, not the fact that people will take advantage yeah, of it. I agree. People will always take advantage of situations like that, right? So that's what I think is farcical. And I think, you know, people are like, don't be mean to billionaires and stuff. And it's like, all right, well, you make it so easy, though, because <laughs> you got to lay off thousands and thousands of people from WeWork. You give some dude $1.7 billion. That just feels difficult for yeah. people, I think. Yeah or like Amazon made 11 billion dollars in profit this year and it hates making profits cuz it really confuses Amazon but you know whatever it's gonna pay zero income tax on that 11 billion I, You're like well I didn't make 11 billion I didn't make I anything love that. We work like story. It, uh, well, it's amazing to me it's crazy I love right it. it's
0: crazy the whole thing it's is one of scary. my most favorite so, stories ever
1: mast it's gonna go straight into so many um,
0: mm.
1: it's the it's a web van and the pets.com of this <laughs> bubble. It's not a bubble. It's this decade, let's just
0: call it. This is the moment where confidence evaporates. It's the master grift. It is. Good it really for you, is. dude. Yeah. You sold these idiots on nonsense.
1: <laughs> in, a, in a way, yes. He was like the ultimate like grifter. He saw, I can pretend that I, my, my real estate venture is a physical social network. <laughs> okay and I'm going to convince people that I'm really smart with loads of money to give me loads of money, and then I'm going to use it to buy trademarks off myself (laughs) and my own jets, and okay, and no one's going to seem to stop me, so I'll keep doing it. Like It's baffling, but at the same time, whilst hilarious because only VCs got burned, no, because loads of people who now don't have jobs who like the FL. One thousand people who clean WeWork offices all over the world are now being fired, with the option to be rehired as freelancers to a different company at without yeah, with less
0: security. They're so like, oh, yeah,
1: yeah. So they get screwed. It's always those people that get screwed, not the charlatan billionaires who don't seem to go to jail for being not
0: because they or, are no one. They're part of seen. the system. You know that's why I laugh yeah. at it. You know, they not because of the unfortunateness of the situation that hurts regular people, but that. The yeah. hand wringing, this idea that like, yeah. oh my God, this is so unique. I'm like, this dude, that dude could only be that dude because of this is bullshit.
1: <laughs> yeah. I, I, I think I'm not a sort of pure behavioralist, but I think behavior is mostly a function of context. People respond to incentives. The culture of your company is basically what decisions you reward and what decisions you punish. And that filters that down into how people act and behave like if you create the systems are the problem. And like, I get really angry. I think when people are saying like, it's a, it's a problem. People don't recycle. I'm like, that isn't the problem. The problem is that people are being given options of buying only things wrapped in plastic and then you're, and then you're blaming them for it. But like, well, they're busy. Most of them don't make any money and they're very tired asking them to also solve the problems of pollution and plastics by not having straws, just feels fundamentally uncool when people being paid billions of dollars could maybe allocate some of their thinking to
0: solving it exactly. instead. Exactly. Systemic problems shouldn't lay at the hands of regular people. Uh, exactly. <laughs> no. I think so. Yes. I want to jump into, um, we have two segments that I always do on the show. Cool. One of them is Off the Dome, where I'm going to hit you with a couple of just quick-fire questions. Cool. And you just hit me back with your first First response off the dome, a little hip-hop homage. Okay, love it. So um, the first one is your traveler, hotel, hostel, or Airbnb? Airbnb, usually, because I didn't start
1: to get into cooking until I left having an apartment. And so now having a kitchen is a real gift. So actually be number one to be staying with friends because I find that to be a very valuable way to spend like you spend a week with somebody, it's very different to seeing them for an evening. And I, I yeah. have found that our relationships have got much deeper and richer when we have had the opportunity to stay with friends for a period of time like that. Then, Airbnb, if I have a long period of time, we're staying one right now. Our lovely hosts are in the garden doing some gardening, and we meet some nice people that way, or we get our own apartment, which is nice. But then, for convenience, if it's a client thing and it's fast in and out, then hotel. So, yeah.
0: Fair enough. Now, I want to hear from you what is one of your best or most effective? grounding tools what do you use to kind of process all of this as you move and travel your relationship your work what's yeah. an effective grounding tool for you
1: yoga is our primary one I would say we try and do yoga a lot I got into yoga because as he suggested it because when I first started traveling we were traveling too fast and I was still working through some uh, things from my time in New York and I couldn't sleep for a long time, and it was all a bit broken, and I couldn't stop being anxious and all that kind of stuff. So yoga really helps with that. It just takes a while, like anything, to get into a practice where you can calm yourself down. We do do some meditation stuff, but not religiously. But like those sort of going to bed things are really helpful for us. Yeah, I mean it's just, it's simple stuff. Like it took me a long time to accept this fact, but like my body, my brain needs constant work and their related ideas. And by the time I hit 40, it was already getting too late to start exercising, but you know, I'm working on it. So,
0: good job. In my theoretical question, moving around, no matting is now mm-hmm. banned. Greta has won. Okay. There's no more to travel. Yes. What's the one place that you would want to make your home? Oh, gosh. We get asked this question quite a lot.
1: And a couple of things I'm going to say before coming to any kind of conclusion here. But first of all, got to love Greta. She's wonderful. I really do just because she's so clear and such a brilliant speaker and communicator and, and you know, wonderful. People do... She's awesome. She's awesome, yeah. People do call me out for this quite a lot. Like, I fly once or twice a week. That's not good, carbon footprint-wise. I accept that. Mm-hmm. The only three things worse than flying are having a kid, having a house, and having a car you drive every day. I don't have a kid, I don't have a house, and I don't have a car. So, I think it bounces in, out in the wash, although, yes, it'd be better if I didn't fly all the time. However... I've made other choices that restrict my emissions and carbon footprint. So that's one thing. But let's just say uh, eventually get a bit tired. I would love in an ideal world to to do like seasons, like quarters maybe in different places. I'm currently very in love with Auckland because I'm here and I like New Zealand and my mum's a Kiwi. So I have a passport to this country, which is useful and awesome and good. I'm very... Fond of America. I think America is the most ridiculous place in the world and the most interesting sometimes. And Rosie's family is there. So there's always going to be a part of us returning to America. I probably, I'm not sure, probably Nashville. I do like it there a lot, but other places too. I'm very fond of Mexico City as a sort of base because it's extremely cheap and extremely vibrant. And I think that would be a good place to build. But, and here's my get out clause the place is sort of irrelevant in some ways because what would make me want to stay in the same place or us would be kind of trying to work out how to establish a community of some kind that worked in a place, you know, or I don't know exactly. I think it's not really about the where so much as because we're gonna travel for work anyway, right? So if it's near an airport, that would be convenient. Okay. But if we get anywhere, then it's like where are all your friends? And that's the problem. All of our friends are just cast to the nine corners, you know? <laughs> there's some in London, there's some in New York, there's some all over America because you know how working in America works. People move a lot for jobs. It's more, I think, about bringing people back together and trying to find opportunities to do that. Okay. And I guess somewhere with clean air would be very good. I'm asthmatic, and so I'd prefer that. That would be great.
0: All right. Perfect. Perfect. The last segment I have is called The Drop. Okay. And The Drop is just a recommendation that you could share with our listeners, and that can be anything. Okay. I have one as well. I'll go first. Cool. Because mine's just a book, not just a book. It's actually a great book. Mm -hmm. And it's called The Age of Surveillance Capitalism. Yeah, great. Um, Professor Shana Zuboff. I read this actually earlier in the year, but I've been coming back to it repeatedly since I made that first read. So that's my drop. Mm -hmm. And what's yours, my friend? I'm going to cheat because, you know, I
1: can. We do this every week, twice a week with our newsletter. It's called Strands of Genius, Strands of Stolen Genius. So, we refer to all kinds of things podcasts, articles, books, art. You can subscribe at slash subscribe. And I guess the thing that we've been finding very valuable of late a lot is that the Calm app really been enjoying the Calm app. It's a meditation app, but the bit I'm really into at the moment are sleep stories, which is like stories, like bedtime stories for adults, <laughs> which sounds infantilizing, but it's absolutely wonderful. I'm a big fan. And as a way of saying, okay, it's hard to turn your phone off or it's hard for me to stop tweeting and go to bed and just read a book. Cause I start reading a book and I want to tweet things from the book and mm-hmm. I'll read a comic book on my phone, but then it's always Twitter there. So it's a really good way to say, okay, I'm going to put my phone down, play the app and, uh, you know, make that transition consciously towards
0: going to sleep. So I found that very valuable. Awesome. Awesome. Brother, this has been great. Thanks for having me. It's been a pleasure having Faris Yaqub join me on The Deep Dive. We discussed the current shifts in the advertising industry, how novelty can be a creative boost, and how a nomadic lifestyle can break you into new creative territory. We also challenge the notions of binary thinking, art versus science, generalist versus rigor, and so much more. You can listen to The Deep Dive via Apple Podcasts and our website, TheDeepDivePod.com. Download, subscribe, listen, and share. If you like what you're hearing and enjoy what me and the team are putting together, then leave us a review. We'd love to hear from you. You can follow me on Twitter via FarFlungPhil. To all my listeners, wherever you are in the world, wherever you are in your life's journey, I thank you. See you on the other side.